Good morning, Calvary. Good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you. My name is Brad. I am at the Way Church in Vancouver. I am a student at Regent College, finishing up a master's degree. Uh, I have a wife and a one and a half year old daughter at home who couldn't be here this morning. I was here with you a month ago, and it's really good to be back. I had such a good time with you all last month, and as a guest preacher, it's really a good sign when you're invited back. Like, you never quite know, you know, you drop into a community, you say your piece, and then you leave. And you leave not really knowing how any of it's received, but you're hoping for the best. So to be invited back, you know, I left going, you know, was I too hard on Dave? Like... Should I not have made quite so much fun of him last time? Like, but, you know, I'm invited back. It's a good sign. I'm feeling good, and it's good to be with you all. And not only that, but I get to close out your series in the book of Philippians, which is an honor, something I'm really excited to do. I feel like a closer in baseball coming out of the bullpen, ready to throw some fastballs, close this game out, just like Paul would. I say that in honor of baseball being back. I'm very excited. But for the sake of time, we're just going to jump into it. We're going to jump into Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up there. And I'm going to read the rest of the letter. And we're going to spend our time this morning camping out in what I believe to be the last big idea that Paul really hones in on, which is verses 10 to 13. But I want to read the entirety for us to get a sense of it. And then we'll we'll press in this morning. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you have had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any In every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am counting for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payments and even more. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. I hope that all of you in the room this morning can think of a time in your life when you were in a bit of a bind and someone generously came through for you. And I want you to think about that moment You know, maybe you were down on your luck, you know, you're out of work or not enough money to pay the bills. Maybe you were sick in the hospital, whatever it might be. And somebody, whether it's a friend or a family member or a church member or a total stranger, maybe, somebody was there for you in that moment with a place to stay, a note of encouragement, 
a blessed gift that's thoughtful, brought to your door, whatever it might be. But how do you repay somebody for generosity like that? You know, when you're in a moment like that and somebody is so generous and thoughtful, how do you repay somebody for generosity like that? Uh, Reese's announcement about coffee being back really resonated with me in the deepest places of my soul. I, I love coffee, like way too much. And as a confession, and again, I'm opening windows into my soul, I'm, I'm very pretentious about it. My wife gives me a hard time all the time. I'm very pretentious about it. I love to spend way too much time every morning intentionally making myself a, a cup of pour-over coffee with good beans from some local roaster. Very pretentious, but very important. I love coffee. And it was a few, a few weeks back I got invited to uh, speak at this young adults night at the church I used to serve at. And so I came back to this young adults community that I used to serve and, and I brought a word and, and taught there. And at the end of the night, they called me up onto the stage and they made this whole kind of like ordeal scene out of presenting me with this gift, which is incredibly generous. And I opened the gift and it's really awkward when like a whole room full of people are watching you open a gift they're giving you. And I opened this gift and it's this kettle. Now this might not sound super exciting to most, but there's this kettle that I've been eyeing for probably like seven years. Look, you can see it's pretentious even just looking at it. I've been eyeing this kettle for seven years. It's got this goose, gooseneck spout that's perfect for pour over coffee. It's electric. You can set what temperature you want it to go to and it'll hold it there for however long you need. Anyway, I'm very excited about it. They give me this kettle. This is not an inexpensive kettle. I've probably wanted this for seven years. I'd it, never went through with it because I just couldn't justify it. They give me this kettle and I'm blown away. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. And I'm in front of this whole room full of people waiting for my reaction. And it's one of those things where it's like, what do you do in moments like that? How do you respond to gratitude and to generosity like that? I was in that predicament going, how do you even respond to this? And I think, you know, you start with simply saying what? Thank you. Yes, that's a good place to begin. But what in the world is there to say in those moments other than thank you? And I think that's so much of what our worship to God in the church is, right? When we sing our songs, it's, a, it's an overflow. It's an overflow of all that we can say in response to his generous gift. It's just, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And this is a bit of what's going on with Paul in this letter to the Philippian church. As you might know from the rest of your series with the context going on here, Paul was in prison likely in Rome, and he's in prison as an enemy of the state because he was preaching the gospel. He was preaching this gospel that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He's a traitor to the empire. And in the context of his time, if you were in prison like Paul was, you're, you're basically on your own for food and drink and whatever provisions you needed. You're, you're on your own for these. So think about that for a second. You are completely dependent, like at the mercy of your family and friends to come through for you in these moments. And so Paul's, Paul's also been an itinerant preacher, so he's been traveling around, and so he finds himself quite far from home. He's at the heart of the empire, probably about a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, which would have been home for him. He is all alone, literally starving to death in his Roman prison cell. And then one day, out of nowhere, his door opens, or whatever happened, 
and a guy named Epaphroditus walks in. And Epaphroditus walks in. He's arrived from Philippi, which seems to be well over 800 miles away, which in this day was not just like a little two-hour flight. There's a lot more to that. He's come from Philippi, a church that Paul planted there years before. And he shows up and he's got food and he's got water, he's got money, he's got clothing, all the provisions that he needs. And Paul is literally saved from death by these gifts from Philippi. And Paul's left then in that follow-up moment where it's like, what do I say? What do I say to this? How do I repay this kind of generosity? Like maybe a little, uh, like a little trinket for your trip to Rome? You know, like, do you want to go to get a keychain from the Colosseum gift shop or something? Like, what do you want to do at this point? And Paul writes this letter to the, ch- to the church in Philippi, this letter that you've been studying for weeks, months. And one of the major motivations for the writing of this letter was to say thank you. Thank you for the provisions that you brought through Epaphroditus. And the end of the letter, the part that we just read this morning, is really where we see that thank you element most enacted. The ending reads a bit like a glorified thank you note. And so I want to spend, like I said, the majority of our time this morning in verses 10 through 13, because I think Paul gives a really important wrap-up thought in verses 10 to 13 of Philippians 4. And I want us to work through the text slowly a little bit this morning. So I want us to look at verse 10 to start. Paul writes in this thank you note to the church in Philippi. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. The the word rejoice there can also be translated as a celebration. I've had a great celebration in the Lord. Now remind me again, where is Paul? He's in prison. He's in jail. But he writes, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord because of you. This right here is Paul putting into practice much of what he's been preaching throughout the whole letter and many of his other teachings. What he's been teaching all through Philippians, he's doubling down on it to finish. And this is him putting it into practice. This is Paul doing the stuff. Joy amidst adversity. This is it right here. So he says, I've had this great celebration in the Lord. I've rejoiced because at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, we don't know exactly what he means by that specifically, why they had no opportunity. It might just be because they were 800 miles away and Paul was essentially off the grid. It might have been because the Philippians were were poor and so it took some time to accrue the funds and the resources to provide him with any. It might have just been any of these things. We're not totally sure. But in essence, Paul is saying, look, you had no opportunity to show it, but you were concerned for me. And that has become abundantly clear. So thank you. Thank you, Epaphroditus. Thank you, church in Philippi. Your gifts, your money, your food saved my life. You were the family that I needed to depend on in this moment in my life, and you came through for me. So thank you. But look as he continues. This is where it gets really interesting. Verse 11. I am not saying this because I'm in need. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Wait. Wait, what, Paul? 
What do you mean you're not saying this because you're in need? Of course you're in need. You're in prison. We've been over this. You're about as in need as anyone could possibly be in this moment in time. But he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Why? For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Meaning, I wasn't, I wasn't down crying, sad or angry, tears, miserable, shouting at God, breaking apart my faith in prison because of all this stuff that had happened to me. He's like, no, I was having a great celebration in the Lord and starving to death, but having a great celebration in the Lord nonetheless. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And he continues in verse 12, he says, for I know what it is to be in need. Down and out, in poverty, health failing, all alone. Yeah, I know what that's like. Frankly, probably better than most of you. Read the book of Acts. I know what that is like. And I also know what it is to have plenty, he says. To have more than enough, food to spare, money to spare, roof over my head, a job, friends, family, part of a thriving, passionate church that's living in harmony, living in unity. Yep, I know what that's like. I know both. And this is where Paul starts to sound a little bit like, I was, I was reading this this week and I felt like Paul starts to sound a little bit like, like a wellness blogger you might read today on like a WordPress site. Where he's like, you know, three steps to a more peaceful life. You know, five life hacks that will transform your day. I changed this one habit and now I'm aging in reverse. You know, like he's kind of like baiting headlines. Paul says in verse, in verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content. I have learned the secret of being content. If that's not a baiting headline, I don't know what is. The secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want, Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. Just subscribe to my mailing list. You'll find out. The root word secret there in the Greek is this word mueo. And, and mueo is actually a word that's associated with mystery. I was looking up the semantic range of this word this week, and the first translated definition of mueo was to initiate into the mysteries. And what some of that means is it was a word that was used by, by Eastern mystery religion of the first century. I heard it equated to kind of like the first century equivalent of Scientology. So super reputable is what I'm saying. But in the Eastern religions, you would have um, essentially what were in, like, initiation rituals that you'd have to go through. And once you go through these initiation rituals, you'd go through them in order to discover the secret or the mueo. So Paul invoking this word mueo here, he's drawing on that and he's saying, I've gone through the initiation rituals. I'm on the inside. I've found the secret. I signed up for the mailing list, got the info. Paul claims to have found the secret to contentment. Anyone in this room today feel like they could use that secret? This whole week as I was studying this text and preparing this message, I was struck by my own lack of authority to preach any such message. So I'm preaching to myself first and foremost this morning, I'll be honest. 
Because I feel very far from able to say confidently like Paul, I have learned the secret of being content. I am 100% content. I don't want more money. I don't want a better job. I don't want more stuff. I don't want more square footage. I don't want to be able to someday own a house in this insane city. No, not me. I'm 100% content. I, I feel very far from being able to say that. Can you say that? Oof. Contentment is such an elusive thing, am I right? And what blows my mind about this passage is that nothing about Paul's circumstances says he should be content. Even in our present day metrics, he's not rich. In fact, he's in poverty. He's not famous, more likely infamous. He's wanted by the government. He's not married. He's single. In fact, many scholars speculate he was a widower. He's not in good health. His body's failing him. He's been stoned too many times. Not our modern translation. His body's failing him. Think about the thorn in the flesh that he speaks of. His health is failing. Nothing about Paul's circumstances says he should be content. Here's a guy in prison, dirt poor, bad health, future looking bleak, and he says he's having a great celebration in the Lord. Listen, I have learned the secret to being content. And it's this kind of guy who's been through the wars that you want to learn a little something about contentment from. Am I right? So let's try to do that briefly this morning. Let's try to learn a few lessons from Paul about contentment, about this secret he speaks of. Here's a few thoughts on contentment for this morning from this text from Paul. The first one is this. Contentment is something you learn. Contentment is something you learn. Look at the language Paul uses. Verse 11, he says, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. See, contentment is not natural. It's not basic to the human condition. It's not our default setting as human beings. We're not just going to kind of fall back into our natural rhythms and find ourselves content. That's not the way that we are. Think all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They're placed in this beautiful garden full of thriving trees, full of fruit, and they're, and they're told, just don't eat from this one tree. And what do they do? They get enough of all these trees, and they're like, well, but I kind of want that one. It's just not enough. They want the thing that they can't quite have. In a world full of yeses, of divine gifts and beauty, there will always be something just out of our reach. Sure, life's great now, but... But when I get married, you know, then I'll be happy. Or when I graduate from school, then I'll really, really start. Or, or when I get that job stability that I've been going really hard for to get. Or when we're done raising our kids and they're, and they're finally moved out, then really, like, I'll arrive at that contentment. Or when our kids are finally done getting molars and they go back to being sane human beings. Or maybe that's just my experience. There will always be something just out of reach. That's the way that desire works. I like to think of it this way. Have you ever been driving in a car where the person in control of the music has musical ADD? Where like they're playing a song and a song's going, and it's, oh, it's getting to the good part. And they let a song go just as long as they're like interested in it. And then when they lose interest, they cut it off and go on to the next song. Again, window into my soul. This drives me bonkers. This is like one of my biggest pet peeves. The artist crafted this song with a purpose. Let it finish. 
The song's just getting to that moment where it's like really coming together. It's like building up to that beautiful part of the song, you know. Oh, it's getting to that great moment. And right when it's about to get there, the person in control of the music cuts it off and off you go to somewhere else. I think of that moment right there, that moment right when it's about to get to the good part and then it's snatched away from you. That moment right there is the human condition. That moment is the human condition. Right where you're about to get to that moment of that beautiful part, that perfect completion, it's on, you're on the cusp of it. And right there, it's cut off. Almost there. Almost at rest. That, oh, so close. It's right in front of me. Almost at rest. Just out of reach. We just need a little more here and a little more there. Friends, there will always be something just out of reach. That is a promise. I was at, I took my daughter to the, to the park the other day. We were in Mount Pleasant in Vancouver and went to this park. And there were four baby swings. This is rare for a park. Usually there's two. This is a pretty big park. We get there, there's four baby swings. They're all available. So I made the mistake of asking my daughter which one she wanted to go on. Don't give your kids choices like that. So she's looking, there's four identical swings, but she takes her sweet time to analyze each of them, decide which swing she wants to go on. Tricky maneuver given you're looking at four identical swings. She decides on swing number three. Okay, finally, eventually, swing number three. So I put her in swing number three. Again, identical swings, literally no different. Then after a few minutes, we're swinging. She's having a great time. But I can tell she's looking around at the options she left behind. This, this other mom with a, with a young boy, a little older than my daughter, so a little bit more grown-up kid, they come over and they plunk down in swing number four, start to swing, have some fun. As soon as they plop down in swing number four, I can see it in my daughter's eyes. <laughs> now I want swing number four. And I'm, and I'm watching, she starts to like look over with kind of like intent, and it starts to like lean and reach. She's reaching for this kid. He's swinging. She's swinging. It was dangerous. And the whole time, I'm just like, you could have had swing number four. It was available to you. Also, it's no different. What's wrong with what you got going on right now? I'm pushing you. You're swinging. You're having a great time. But now that this other kid had swing number four, now she wanted swing number four. She needed it. It was just out of her reach. She couldn't have it, so she wanted it. But notice the role. I tell that story. Like, notice the role that comparison plays in discontentment even for my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. There will always be that other kid in your life. There will always be someone older than you or someone younger than you or better-looking than you or cooler or smarter or more educated, more successful, doing what you always wanted to do but you're not doing. You'll never be the best. I'm just here to encourage this morning. There will always be someone ahead of you or better than you, and you'll never be content until you put to death comparison. Because there will always be somebody or something that's just out of your reach. It's the infinite nature of human desire. And that is why you have to learn to be content. It's something that you have to learn. Paul says it's something he has learned. But the thing about learning is learning's hard work. Students in the room, you know what I'm talking about. I've been a grad school student for years, many years. It's taken a long time. It's hard. It's hard work. The time and the energy and the willpower and the time management when you're ba balancing all kinds of other things in life, it's hard work to learn. 
Paul says, I worked at it, but with the time, I learned the secret of being content. And I, and I think that's actually a beautiful thing for us to hear, because what it means is that he's not saying that contentment is just some epiphany that he got, and hopefully someday you receive the epiphany as well. The beauty for us is that if Paul can learn it, so can we. You have the same spirit in you as Paul. If Paul can learn, I can learn. I have the same spirit in me as Paul. And so can you. Your life is a laboratory and you are a student. And every day, every day that you're at that job that you really want to quit, or every day that you're at the school you're tired of, or you're in the marriage that's in a really unhealthy place right now, every day that you're in those moments, every day is a chance to test and probe and examine and learn the secret of being content. Second lesson from Paul, contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. I love what Paul says. Look at verse 11. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. In verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What that means is whether I'm single or married, whether I'm poor or I'm, enjoy, and I'm employed in the, the job I've always dreamed of, whether I'm renting a tiny apartment or I own the house of my dreams, I've learned the secret in any and every situation, whatever the circumstances. I think it's interesting to, to read texts like this. I think in the ancient Near East, there was a culture where contentment was very much the language used for these kinds of things. I feel like in our day, you might sub that out for the word happy or happiness. But whatever, but whatever it is, we subscribe to this formula that says, if I get X, then I will be happy. When I get more money, when I get a house, then I'll be content or happy. When I get this difficult, messy situation in my life resolved and settled, then I'll be happy. And we all know it's not true, right? And if you don't, you will. It's a myth. It's a myth. It's not true. Because the problem is, the second that you get the goal, the second that you arrive, the goalpost moves just a little further down the road, right? You can have been working for this goal for decades, years, and you finally get to the goal and you achieve it and you live in it and you're like, this is glorious for like a day. And then your mind is filled with what's next, right? What's next? When you're in high school, it's like, ah, I just want to get to college, then, then I'll be content, I'll, I'll be happy. And then you get to college, like, I just want to, just once I get into the, the, the job, I'll be happy. And then you get the job, and like, just once I get a real job, then I'll be happy, you know. Then you get the promotion, and the dreams come true, and it's always, you know, then you want to get married, then you want to buy a house, then you want to have kids, and then you want your kids to move out. It just continues, the cycle goes on. And the world's conception of our dreams and desires are a carrot on a stick. It's always right there, so close you can almost taste it, but it's just out of reach. And that's why Paul says, if you're not content right now, no change in your circumstances is going to get you there. If you're not content single, will you be, will you be content married? Married couples out there, no. No, right? If you're not content in college, will you be content in the workforce? And you go, oh, man, I think I'm an exception to the rule. You're not. If you're not content before kids, will you suddenly be content when they're up all night screaming and you haven't slept in days and you're still having to juggle all the other things in life that you had to juggle before? 
Why do we even think that makes sense? You're not the exception to the rule. And the problem is discontentment robs you of joy. Because it robs you of the ability to celebrate the goodness of God in the moment. I heard one teacher describe contentment as not a destination, but as a mode of travel. Like contentment is not some city or destination that we're going to arrive at someday. It's more like an airplane or a car. It's a way that you move through the universe. It's a mode of travel. Will some moments in our life be easier to be content than others? Without a doubt, no brainer. But as a general rule, I mean, here's a guy in prison, likely going to die there. And he says, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. It's not dependent on your circumstances. Third lesson, and this is the last one, three points like a pro. Contentment is a struggle in times of lack and in times of plenty. Contentment is a struggle in times of lack and in times of plenty. I think this is one we don't often think about. Look at the way verse 12 reads. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul actually says, I've learned to be content in plenty. What? One version I read says, I have learned to cope with having too much. Personally, I've not found that to be a struggle. But what I, why on earth does Paul say that? Well, I think, I think it's because Paul's an intelligent person. And Paul knows the way that money works. Paul knows the spirit of mammon. And the way it works is that the more you have, what? The more you want, right? I remember when I was a student in college, I was dirt poor. I was scraping the bottom of the barrel just to be there. I went to college in Chicago. My three years there, I was working as, a, as an intramural referee on campus. Um, I had this little silver cricket flip phone that I used that you still had to like punch every button four times just to like send a text message, you know, to get letters. All my friends had smartphones, but I was scraping the bottom of the barrel. I was just making it through. But you know what I wasn't thinking about while I was in those years at college? I was not thinking about what awesome car I could buy. Maybe this year, next year, what I wasn't thinking about the things that I could do with the money I didn't have. I would have had to work my intramural job for like 45 years in order to afford a, a car that I would want to buy. But then I remember I graduated college and I, I moved back to BC and I started working a salaried job as a single guy and I had some disposable income and suddenly things were options. I remember things were options and all of a sudden now my mind was, was starting to get filled up. Well, well what, if I, well, what if I got this? What if I, oh, I could, I could use an iPad. Oh yeah, that's great iPad mini. Well, I need an iPad mini, obviously. And you start to get filled with, oh, I need this. What if I got that? I could use that. And now you're sucked in, and now your mind's filled up with all the stuff that you do not have. Because the human desire for money is insatiable. There's a famous line you may have heard from John Rockefeller, who's well-known as probably the wealthiest man in American history. He was once asked, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. The Old Testament wisdom literature that Paul would have been steeped in, 
steeped in, speaks to this a whole bunch. I'll give you a couple examples. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9, it says this, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. How many of us have ever prayed that? I have not. <laughs> give me not poverty. Sure, yeah, I pray that. <laughs> give me not riches. God, God, I think I can handle riches. I think I can handle riches. I'll use them for your glory, I promise. But seriously, how many of us have prayed a prayer like that? God, don't give me poverty. Don't give me riches. Give me just what I need for today. I think for most of us, that sounds like a recipe for debilitating anxiety. But not only does the writer of the proverb pray that, but they say that if I had to narrow it down to two prayers, this would be one of them. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, the writer of Ecclesiastes says this, The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much. But as, as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Because when you have money and when you have stuff, you worry about your money and you worry about your stuff. You worry about the stock market and the things that you have. I was thinking again about the, the kettle that I got as a gift a few weeks back. Again, nobody's impressed by it, but I'm telling you, it's really amazing. This kettle that I got a few weeks back it's funny because ever since I got it, my whole attitude towards my kettle has changed. So before I had this like cheap $20 Amazon, like weighed nothing kettle that was like banged up, had dents all over the place. My daughter used it as a toy. It was whatever, but it did the job. Since I got this new kettle a few weeks back, suddenly every day I'm like, I'm like eyeing it. I see something white. It's like, it's like matte black. I see something white on it. Oh no. And I'm freaking out and I run over to it. Oh, just a fluff. Just a <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But then the other day I noticed there's, oh no, and I went up. It's like a little, a little chip, tiny little chip. I lost it. Lost it. Ruined my day. Ruined my day. I lost it. I'd never felt this way before about my kettle, I can assure you. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. When you have stuff and things and you've invested in them, you, you worry about them. You care about them. It's not all it's cracked up to be. And the goal, friends, as we come out of these lessons, the goal is to celebrate life as a gift. Whatever it is that you have or do not have. And that contentment is a challenge no matter where you land on that spectrum. That desire for more, that thirst is insatiable, and contentment or happiness will always be just out of reach. And I don't know about you, but I want out of that narrative. I want out. I want out of the rat race. And Paul says, I've found the secret to being content. So how do we do it? What's his answer? What is the secret? Well, he tells us as he continues in verse 13. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Turns out the secret has a name. Through him who gives me strength, through King Jesus. 
the living God found in flesh and blood in Jesus of Nazareth. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of people do real weird things with this verse. I think most of us have probably seen people do weird things with this verse. We rip it out of context. I, I love sports. I've been steeped in sports culture my whole life. Athletes do weird things with this verse. And all of a sudden, this verse is justifying why they won a particular football game. And I always just, I'm like, well, what about the Christians on the other team, dude? But I don't know if you ever, if you remember a guy named Tim Tebow, he was this famous Christian athlete, and he had Philippians 4.13 on his, like, face paint for games. And again, it's like, you know, through Christ who strengthens me, I can win this football game. It's like, great, that, that's, not even, that's not even bad or necessarily untrue. But we all see this verse quoted and used by Christians everywhere, all over the place. And almost always, it's quoted hilariously out of context. The secret that Paul's talking about is actually not referring to some magic Christ-infused superpowers that you'll receive to achieve all your goals. The secret of Philippians 4.13 is actually about joy amidst adversity, amidst things not going your way. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This verse we see in here absolutely everywhere to empower all the dreams and goals that people have. In context, it's actually talking about contentment, whether you achieve those goals or not. It's talking about contentment, no matter what happens. Odds are, that's actually a lot more difficult than winning a football game. But in context, Paul is saying you can be content right here, right now in prison, scraping by with mere survival on your to-do list. I can be content, at peace, it, happy, it is enough, through him who gives me strength. He gives me the strength. Paul lived in a moment that was rife with what was called stoicism, and, and in a really distilled version, stoicism preached this kind of self-sufficiency that was birthed out of like dis disconnecting and detaching from your desires. And as you disconnect and detach from your desires, you'd achieve this kind of self-sufficiency in life. It's much like what Buddhism would preach today or a bunch of the New Age movement of our day. But in a culture of detachment from desire and self-sufficiency, Paul is saying, don't detach from your desires. God made you with desires. What he's saying is in dependency, not self-sufficiency, in dependency, put or attach your desires to Jesus in his good news of the kingdom of God. Take all of your drive and your ambition and your work ethic and your craving for more. Take all of that, funnel that, and put that into hungering and thirsting after righteousness, after Jesus, after the kingdom of God, because he is where contentment is found. That phrase, through him who gives me strength, the word through is a preposition in Greek that's translated either through or in. Meaning contentment can be found in him. In him who gives us strength. In this symbiotic relationship with the eternal king of the universe. He is where contentment is found because he alone is enough. I once heard James K.A. Smith, who's probably my favorite author, he said this thing that he may have borrowed, I'm not sure, but he said, discontentment comes when we place infinite value in finite things. 
when we place infinite value in finite things. And what that means is that the only place that contentment can be found is in the one and only truly infinite thing. The one and only truly infinite being. And that is the God of creation. That is Yahweh. That is in Jesus. The desires of this world and finite things as we put value in them beyond their capability is striving after wind, as the writer of the Ecclesiastes would say. They're a carrot on a string. But he is enough. Do you believe that, Calvary? And like I said earlier, I, I may never have felt more like I'm preaching a sermon specifically to me than I do this morning. The grip of the world is strong. Desire is insatiable and it's hard work, a long process of learning to reorient our desires. But he is enough. And he alone is enough. Do you believe that this morning, Calvary? You can be content right here, right now, with all that you have and with all that you do not have. Not in six months, not in six years, not when you graduate, not when you're married, not when you get a house, right here, right now, because he is enough. And it's interesting, looking at Paul's life, Paul's life is all about Jesus. Paul's like, I'm having a great celebration in whom? In the Lord. In the Lord. Not in the money you brought, or the food, or the drink that you brought me, because at last you renewed your concern for me. That's why I'm celebrating, because you lived out the gospel, because you got on the gospel agenda. Paul is rejoicing in the Lord. He's working his tail off for the sake of the gospel. He's in prison for it. His life is all about Jesus, all about the gospel of the kingdom. And friends, if and when you and I get to that place where we are all about Jesus and all about his kingdom work, where our minds are filled not with this or that thing or stuff that maybe we want or that we already have but are not enough, but our minds are filled all about the, his vision for our lives, his vision for our families, his vision for our workplaces, for our city, all about his agenda for the world. When we get to that place, he is enough. And that's the secret to contentment. That's the secret Paul has for us. So I want to close with a confession, bringing it back to my new kettle. I want to close with a confession. You know what I did the next day after I got this kettle as this incredible, generous gift? The very next day, I used it for the first time to make my glorious coffee. And you know what I did that very day? I started searching online for uh, new scales. No joke. It was like, great, this is awesome. I have a glorious new gift of a kettle. Now, how else can I upgrade my situation? How else can I upgrade my coffee setup? I'm saying I get it. I get it. And I feel like the last person to be worthy of preaching a sermon on being content in Jesus. I don't have the boldness of Paul standing up here telling you I've found the secret and learned to be content in any and every situation. I so regularly get caught up in what I want to see God do, in what I want to be doing, in what I want for the future. Basically, all the things I don't have 
rather than focusing on the moment, focusing on the here and now, and thanking God, having a great celebration in the Lord for what I do have, starting with Jesus. And it robs me. It robs me, and it robs each of us of joy. Joy. Joy amidst adversity, right? That's what Paul's been talking about all along in Philippians. It's the tagline of your series, joy amidst adversity. And what Paul says here at the end is, I can do all that in Christ who gives me strength. That's the secret. He is enough. Do you believe that this morning, Calvary? Let me pray for us. Lord God, first and foremost, we thank you. God, we thank you for the very moment we find ourselves in right now. We thank you for the very situations we find ourselves in right now. And Lord, for many of us in this room, I guarantee that feels like a very odd prayer to pray. Because our circumstances and situation feel like anything but something to be grateful for. Our world would look at them and say, you have no reason to be content. But God, we want to we pray, pray, pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, Lord, for all that you have graciously blessed us with, most importantly than anything, your very self. The good news that we get to live into every single day, a vision for the kingdom and eternity that is part of our story, that is our story. And no matter what momentary circumstances we find ourselves in, we know the script, we know the story, we know the ending of our biography. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you for this moment that you've placed us in, this laboratory to learn and grow in being content in any and all circumstances. Thank you that you are enough, Jesus. And I pray that as you transform us at a heart level, as you transform our hearts, that we would be able to be an outpost of your kingdom that is a place of contentment and joy and peace, rejoicing in the Lord in any and all circumstances, and that our city, our community, would experience that peace and joy as we go out. God, what a counter-cultural vision of your kingdom. May we be your agents of that contentment and peace, Lord. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.